Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do consider the reading, the explanation of, and the understanding of Scripture to be part of our worship. It shows that not only are we interested in telling you some things when we sing or when we pray, but hearing some things from you, that we love you enough to listen as your word is being proclaimed, because we see it, we believe it to be your voice for us today. Lord, um, as limited and as imperfect and as flawed as this instrument, this teaching instrument is tonight, we pray that your Holy Spirit would override and be able to speak truth into our lives and into our hearts. I thank you for a church that is solidly built upon the exposition of and the continuance in the Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that as you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, would you lavishly reward those who have sought and studied in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I will say right up front that speaking about the devil is not my favorite subject. It's my least favorite subject. I'd rather not have to tell you about him. But we all have to deal with him. Jesus even had to deal with him. And since the Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices, it's sometimes good to be refreshed on his devices uh, so as to not be ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant, but sometimes we just sort of forget. And we go, oh yeah, that's right, he does do that kind of weird stuff, doesn't he? I had a brush with the dark side with Satan before I was saved, really not knowing what it was all about, but inviting spirits to inhabit my body, and inviting spirits to speak to me and to speak through me, and I just thought it was cool. I just thought, I'm a kid, I'm experimental, I'm interested in the spiritual realm. And uh, I found it to be very, very powerful. But I remember the evening when I had a thought. I thought, if there's this much power on the wrong side, how much power must there be on the right side? And that's what got me interested in searching out and being open to the right side, God's side. Now we have a dynamic that is happening in chapter 4. Actually began in chapter 3, continues in chapter 4. So it's good we're going through the Bible like this. It helps us really understand it. Here's the dynamic. In chapter 3, Jesus came to the Jordan River where John the baptizer hosted his ministry to the people who would come from Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding region. And his message was simple, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those were his words. When people would come to him, he would baptize them for the remission of sins, he said. When the scribes and the Pharisees came, 
John the Baptist's message turned a little bit because he doubted their motives. He thought, they're really not here to be baptized. They're here to just scope it out, check it out, see if it's going to create any problems with the establishment in Jerusalem. So, John's sermon to them was a little more unique. He said, brood of slimy snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And don't you start thinking within yourselves that just because we're Abraham's descendants, we're off the hook because God can raise up out of these rocks sons of Abraham. So he created a little bit of friction with that group. But one day, to his surprise, Jesus came down to the Jordan River and he walked into the waters to be baptized and John like did a double take. He like blew a fuse. It didn't compute. He thought, oh, wait, 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 wait. I should be baptized by you. You certainly don't need to be baptized by me. Jesus said, John, I want you to let this one go. I want you to permit this to be so for now, to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus was baptized to identify with sinful people. That's why he had come, to identify with us, take our sins. And that baptism was a prefigure of that. Now it says, when Jesus was baptized, that the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. It was an action from God to show, to prove God's favor on this moment. The Holy Spirit alighted upon Jesus like a dove. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity were involved. And the Father said, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with Him. That was chapter 3. The heavens were opened in chapter 3. Now we're in chapter 4. We find a different dynamic. As the heavens were opened in chapter 3, now hell is opened in chapter 4. The doors of heaven are opened one minute. The doors of hell are opened the next minute. Now, I just want you to realize that. Cogitate with me upon that thought for just a moment. Because there's a principle there. It's actually a principle you learned as a kid. It's true in the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. Your teachers taught it to you. It comes from Isaac Newton, who actually coined the phrase, when I say it, I know you're going to be able to finish it. Every action brings an equal and opposite reaction. See, I knew that you knew it. We all know it. It's a fact of life. It's a fact of life physically. It's also a fact of life spiritually. Every action of God brings a reaction from God's enemy. Every action in heaven brings a reaction in hell. So as heaven was opened, now hell is opened. You could illustrate this principle. Actually, you could illustrate it tonight. If you go home and your light, your porch light is not on, go turn it on. And then go back in 10 minutes and see if there's any difference. This is what you'll notice. As soon as you turn it on, you'll just see a light. But leave it shining in the darkness to permeate the darkness and bring light. And after a while, bugs will surround that light. 
And some of them are nasty, gnarly-looking bugs. In some parts of the country, I mean, they're, they could carry your kids away. <laughs> when God turns His light on, the bugs come to surround the light. When, when that powerful force to permeate the darkness is unleashed, released, Satan and his minions and his demons will react. And that's the principle. That's a principle in your life. The more business you do with God, the more business you will do with the devil. It's a fact of life. Don't let that scare you. It's just a fact of life. Nothing promotes the activity of the devil more than your proximity to God. The closer you get to God, I'm going to seek the Lord. I want to live close to God. Don't think that Satan is going to give you a standing ovation with that one. Don't think that the minions of hell are going to go, yes, let's cheer that commitment on. They're going to go, oh, really? Well, let's see what we can do about that. And I commend you if you've never read C.S. Lewis's great book, The Screwtape Letters. He gives tremendous insight into how the devil thinks and how he strategizes and plans the attack against us. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, I almost couldn't finish writing this book to, to constantly place myself in the position as being the devil and to think like he thinks so malevolently for a long period of time as to undo God's work was very difficult, he said for him. So every action brings an equal and opposite reaction. There is a mistake that many people make regarding the devil. Actually, there's several mistakes, but two of them that stand out. One mistake I find among Christians who make too much of the devil, and they see him everywhere and everything, and it's always, you know, almost like they're, they either go crazy loving to cast, you know, it's like, where's the devil? Where's, oh, let me at him. You know, almost a fascination with evil that is unhealthy. The other is to deny his existence altogether. That's the other mistake. That's the polar opposite idea. It's a mistake to dismiss the work of the devil and not believe that he's a literal being. It's a mistake a lot of people make. Oh, you know, it's just a figment of one's imagination. It's a figure of speech. He's not a literal person. Now, that's exactly what the devil wants you to believe because, you see, there's no enemy as powerful as one you don't believe exists. If you're fighting a battle and you can't see where the enemy is and you're out there on the battlefield and there's a real enemy, he's got his guns pointed at you in your camp, if you're out there going, boy, I don't, I don't see the enemy, oh, he probably doesn't even exist, and you just start walking out in the open field, you're dead meat. So it's a mistake to not believe in the existence of the devil. Charles Finney, who was a revivalist and an evangelist in our country years ago on the eastern seaboard, he was having a conversation with the man, and the man said to Finney, I don't believe in the existence of any devil. And Finney smiled and said, You do battle with him for a while, and you will. He knew from firsthand experience what it was like as did Martin Luther, who was purported to have thrown an inkwell at the devil when he appeared to him at the castle in Wartburg, Germany. Finney knew what that was like. 
Peter put it this way. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you're not watching and vigilant, you can get eaten up. So heaven is opened. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see how hell is open. Now let me just frame something for you. And here, here's what's it's good about the fact that we have been in two Old Testament books, Genesis, then Exodus, and now Matthew. Because we're a little more fresh off of the Genesis bandwagon. I mean, okay, it's been a, a while, but I don't know if it's a year or two, but, but still, it's not ten years removed. You may remember something, and when you remember it, you go, oh, well, that, that makes sense. And, and because, here's, here's what I want to say, this shouldn't surprise us. This whole temptation thing, this whole Satan coming at Jesus shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we should have been anticipating it all along. Because there was a promise made back in Genesis 3 where God said to the devil in the Garden of Eden, He said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise or crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So there was a prediction made early on that in the human lineage, born of a woman will be One who will come to destroy the work of Satan, to crush his head, to take away his powerful authority. It was the first messianic prophecy ever spoken. So we're not surprised when that seed, Jesus, is eventually born to see the kind of animosity against him, like with Herod killing all the babies around Bethlehem, or as soon as Jesus begins his public ministry, which is here, for Satan to come at him. Ah! This is that seed. This is that one. Here he is. So we're not surprised. We anticipate it. Then, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now stop right there. The Spirit is clearly in control. The Holy Spirit that is alighted upon Jesus, his whole life is Spirit-led. He is not driven. He is led by the Spirit. And the Spirit in control brings him to a place where he must face his opponent. But notice when Satan comes at him. Notice, and there's three temptations, by the way, we're going to cover. Notice when the attack comes. First of all, after Jesus is baptized. What a, what a glorious moment. God speaks from heaven. Wow! The Holy Spirit shows up in symbolic form. Wow, the heavens are open. Wow, miraculous, glorious. And then, after such a wonderful, glorious, blessed event, the devil shows up. Now just remember that. Why does he show up after such an event? Because he wants to steal the blessing God gave, that's why. We're not ignorant of his devices, so don't be ignorant when, when you receive a tremendous blessing, just just wait, wait for it, wait for it. And don't be surprised if 
the enemy, the devil, isn't there to hijack the blessing. The children of Israel were miraculously delivered out of Egypt and brought into the wilderness to the Red Sea. And right, right there, after that miraculous deliverance, after the night of the firstborn judgment upon Egypt, and there they are, they start to be cared for by God in the bosom of His care, which was the, the wilderness, as they get to the Red Sea. Then the Pharaoh dispatches his army to destroy them. Right after that wonderful blessing of deliverance. Here we go. God's in charge. Then the enemy comes from behind to attack and destroy. To steal the blessing. Here's another example. King Hezekiah of Judah decides, let's get spiritual, man. Let's get right with God. Let's reinstitute the Passover. Let's dig our deep, our roots deep into spiritual truths and get into the reading of the Word of God. And let's celebrate a Passover that hasn't been celebrated in hundreds of years in our land. It was a tremendous spiritual revival and a tremendous spiritual blessing. As soon as they celebrated Passover, it was then that the Assyrian armies surrounded Jerusalem and threatened to destroy Judah. After the blessing, Satan there to rip it off. Now, of course, he prayed and Isaiah said, man, don't sweat the small stuff. God will take care of them. But the threat was there nonetheless. When Jesus takes his three boys, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain, and he's transfigured before them, you know that story, Matthew chapter 17, beautiful story. We'll get to it by God's grace. And they saw the miracle of the glowing, shining, transfigured Jesus with the head of the law, Moses, the most prominent prophet, Elijah. And they're checking this out going, man, I'm th- they're going, it doesn't get any better than this. Right? That's what they're looking at each other saying. Peter, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? No, man, this is awesome. Hold on, i got to say something. Right? And he, he interrupts it. You, you know how that goes. Well, as, as wonderful as that was, what was waiting for them when they got down the mountain? a demon-possessed kid that they couldn't deal with. I asked your disciples, they couldn't handle this. So the threat to the blessing. So God seeks to bless. Satan is a thief. He seeks to rob the blessing, steal, kill, destroy. Bishop J.C. Ryle of Liverpool used to say, the devil is never more active than in a church. It's an interesting statement. And you that have been believers for a long time, you go, yeah, yep. You come and God meets you and He unlocks truth and you get blessed. And then church is over. You get in your car, still on a high. Oh, Lord, you spoke to my heart. You're dealing with my life. I love it. And then you get on the road. And you're going to pull up to Starbucks on the way home. And somebody, going way too fast, passes you by, squeezes you out, and then pulls right in front of you and, and gets the space that you should have had. And, and, and now your joy's gone. It's shot. All the victory, all the joy, just because some selfish... <laughs> we know that kind of stuff happens. Now, I will say again, 
That's just a spiritual principle. It's a fact. Just like after the baptism, after the blessing comes the thief. Still, you don't have to be afraid of him, your enemy. You're dealing with a defeated enemy. You're, you're fighting not for victory. You're fighting from victory. You have the victory in Christ. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So rather than you trying to just embolden yourself, I'm going to fight the devil, why don't you just have Jesus do it? When Satan knocks on the door, just say, Jesus, would you answer that? <laughs> He's a lot better at it than you are. He's defeated him, as, as we'll see here. So, it was after the baptism. And the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to, uh, to be tempted by the devil. You've heard of uh, Murphy's Law, right? You know how that goes? Anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. There's also Lucifer's Law. Anything that the devil can ruin, he will ruin. So he's trying to ruin something. It's, he's not going to succeed. Um, it says, verse 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Let's stop right there. I know we're going slowly, but... We've got till the Lord comes back. Because once, we're, once we finish the book all the way to Revelation, we're going to do it again. So might as well just really enjoy it as we can. We, we did the Bible from 30,000 feet, and we went really fast, and now we can dig our roots down. I asked you a question, and then we answered it partway. When did Satan attack Jesus? Number one, after the blessing, after the baptism. Number two, he attacked him when he was the weakest. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and then the Bible says, and he was hungry. Let me first tell you a little bit about fasting, and then let me tell you a little bit about this 40 days thing. You've read about, if you've read your Bible, or you've heard Christians talk about fasting. Let me tell you what it's not, first of all. It's not a sanctified diet. It's not a, a spiritual way to lose weight. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'll try the Bible diet. It includes a little bit of fasting, and that'll be chic and cool, and I can wear that size. That's not what it's about. It's not a sanctified diet, nor is fasting a way to manipulate God to get what you want. And I've been praying for this thing, and I haven't got it, so now I'm going to fast, and that'll really twist God's arm just a little more, and I'll get what I want. No, it's not. Fasting is a means by which you deny your body, you deny your flesh, whatever it is you're denying it, food in this case, so that, here's the second part, so that you can focus upon spiritual things. And we don't have time to look it up, but just on your own, go and read through Isaiah chapter 58 and glean those principles about godly fasting, and that will help as to what it was about, what, what it was for. Okay, so Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. So did Moses. When he went up to receive the law on Mount Sinai, we read it in our last book, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So did Elijah. Interesting how Jesus, Moses, and Elijah share many things together. Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, after that contest on Mount Carmel, in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Jezebel and King Ahab, her husband, 
he hightails it down toward Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. And there on Mount Horeb, just one of those little mountains next to Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah fasted. I have read that when a person begins to fast for a prolonged period of time, at first you're very hungry, it's very difficult to fast. Having done it a few times, or if you've done it, you know what it's like. You know, you do it, it's like for the first day, it's like, it's killer. The second day, it's like intolerable. But I'm told, though I've never made it this far, but I'm told that if you keep fasting and withhold food from your body for, for a prolonged period of time, you eventually get to a place where you're not hungry at all. And you can deal with it. Your stomach is shrunk, your, your body's feeding off of itself, essentially. But you don't have that deep-seated hunger like you did first. But... When the hunger reemerges, like it did here with Jesus, it's an indication that you're at starvation level, that you're literally starving to death. Jesus was starving to death after 40 days and 40 nights. Now it says he's hungry. The hunger is reemerged. He's starving to death. When does Satan attack him? Not just after the blessing, but when he is most vulnerable, when he is at his weakest level physically. Now, I've learned something about the devil and about temptation and about attack. When you're weak and vulnerable physically, you are often weak and vulnerable emotionally and spiritually. They seem to be so tied together, it's difficult to, to separate them. And that's why a person who is dealing with some physical issues can be prone to depression. Elijah was. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was depressed. He wanted to kill himself. He went from the spiritual high to the spiritual low. When we are most vulnerable and at our weakest point, see, Satan has studied human nature for thousands of years. He knows what makes people tick. And when we are most vulnerable, he knows that we'll do almost anything to get relief in that vulnerability. So Jesus is now starving to death, and Satan comes to him, gives three temptations. Oh, something else. Jesus, fasting, no doubt, accompanied with praying, he's seeking to get alone with his father. And Satan comes to him. Blessed by God in a vulnerable state, seeking to be alone with his father. Have you noticed when you have your quiet time or you try to? The phone may not have rung in your house for two days. Suddenly, ring, and then you get it because you got to deal with it and then put it down. Five minutes later, it rings again. You're thinking, why? Why is it when I have my quiet time that I get all of these distractions or my mind goes crazy and is flooded with all of those distracting thoughts? Why is it? Simple. Satan hates Quiet time. Hates when you're alone with God. He knows that that's the secret of your strength. You're tapping into it. That's why. And so Jesus is alone with his Father. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, and I mentioned there's three temptations. Here's the first one. The devil questions God's provision. It's a questioning of God's provision for Jesus. Notice it. The tempter said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, your translation and mine says if, right? You may have another translation that's more accurate, and it it would be best translated as some translated. I think the NASB, but I'm not sure, says since you are the Son of God. That's That's a more accurate translation. Since, see, it's not, it's not um, a supposition, it's an affirmation. Uh, the Weiss translation puts it this way. In view of the fact that you are God's Son, I know that you are the Son of God. I'm not disputing that. And since you are, he says, command that these stones become bread. He is suggesting that the Father is allowing His Son to starve. Boy, your father doesn't take great care of you. He doesn't really provide for you, does he? It's a slam on the love of God and a temptation for Jesus to do for himself what God the Father has obviously not done. He hasn't taken good care of you. You're out here in the desert. No provision. The Spirit led you out here. For what? Now you're starving to death. It's a slam on the love of God and it's a questioning of the provision of God. You've seen this before. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were first hanging around and there was the tree in the midst of the garden, the devil came in Genesis chapter 3 and said, Has God said to you, you shall not eat of the trees of the garden? Do you see that question? Has, has God denied His love to you? Look at here you are in a garden and God told you, don't eat anything. So Eve starts having a conversation with the devil. Never a good thing to do. She goes, well, he he really didn't say that. He just said you can't have that one tree in the midst of the garden. Hands off of that one. But but the rest we can freely eat. God God said we can't eat that one because, because, you know, if we do that, it's wrong and and it's a sin. We're going to surely die, she said. That's what God said. We're going to die. The devil immediately said, you won't die. You won't surely die. God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you'll you'll be wise like he is. So again, same, same, same. Questioning the provision of God, the love of God for his children and providing for them. So it was with Abraham and Sarah. They wanted to have a child. God said, don't worry, you'll have a child. Abraham said, I believe you, God. Years went by, he's getting older, she's getting older. Don't worry, you're going to have a child. I believe you, God. She's going, eh, I'm not so sure. And when they're getting really, really old, like even older than I am. (laughs) One day, Sarah said, sweetie, that's a nice little thing that God said that we're going to have a kid. It's just a wonderful thought, but it ain't going to happen. Look at us. Have you looked at yourself lately, Abe? Have you looked at me lately? I have this young girl named Hagar. Just do for yourself what God has not done for you. Same temptation. Doubting the provision, doubting the love of God. Take Hagar. And they had Ishmael. There's been problems ever since over in the Middle East. So doubting the provision of God... Verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, quoting Deuteronomy, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice that Jesus quotes Scripture in this first temptation. And the devil, verse 5, took him up to a holy place and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are, in view of the fact that you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written. Notice now the devil says, oh, I can quote scripture too. He will give his angels charge over you. And, quotes another one, in their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. According to the Jews, the center of the world is Jerusalem. You know why that is? First of all, there's a scripture verse that essentially says that. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, God says, See, I have set Jerusalem in the midst of all the nations round about her. Right in the middle. It's the center of it. That's why Jerusalem is often called the navel of the earth. And because of that verse... Other verses in Jewish literature like the Talmud were written. The rabbis used to say, Israel is the center of the world. Jerusalem is the center of the land of Israel. And the temple is the center of the city of Jerusalem. So if you're at the temple, you're in the very epicenter of the earth. So because of that, Satan took Jesus to the center of the earth where Messiah is supposed to come. Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. Now, there was a belief by the rabbis that when the Messiah comes to redeem Israel, he's going to appear on the holy, the roof of the holy place of the temple. You know why they believe that? Because there's a verse in Malachi chapter 3. We quoted it last week about the messenger, the forerunner. But it says, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, appear at his temple. And the rabbi said, he's good. when he comes to his temple after the forerunner, He's going to appear on the roof so everybody can see him. So he's taken to the very center of the earth theologically. And the devil says, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now, throw yourself down. You know how far down is? The the, the pinnacle of the temple is believed to be that little corner of the building of the porch of Solomon, which sat atop the Temple Mount. It's just on the southeast corner facing the Mount of Olives. Um, Some of you have been to Israel, and you know what it's like when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look across and you see the Temple Mount, and you see a little corner jutting out at you. And you have to imagine, you're seeing the base of it, you have to imagine that on top of that was a huge building called the Porch of Solomon, And the roof of that porch of Solomon, from that point on down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley, is 450 feet. Now you're looking up, the pinnacle of this building is 30 feet, 450 feet. So now Satan, in the second temptation, is questioning God's protection. Hey, I can quote the Bible too, Jesus. And there's Bible verses that say, if you jump, God will protect you. You won't even stub your toe. So prove it that God, your Father, is going to protect you. Now he's questioning not God's provision, but God's protection. 
Prove it. Jump. Let's see if that scripture verse is really true. Let's see if God will protect you. Jesus said to him, verse 7, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now it has been noted that Satan quotes the Bible. Jesus quoted it first. The devil quoted it second. Just, Just a little heads up on that. When the cultist comes to your door and knocks and smiles, whether he bicycles or he walks, and he tries to sell you a false gospel and tell you that Jesus is not what the Bible says he is. And they start quoting scripture to you and you go, wow, man, that's powerful. They really know their Bibles. It must be right because they quoted the scripture. Just remember, you're not ignorant of his devices. Keep in mind that the devil knows the Bible better than any of us. He knows it better than I do. Right? It's been around a long time. He's studied every passage of it. He has been theologically trained in the best seminary in the universe, in heaven. He was the worship leader in heaven, the Bible tells us. So he he knows God's ways. He knows how man acts, and he knows the Bible. So he pulls out very astutely, very shrewdly, a couple verses of Scripture and quotes them. Jesus immediately comes back with, It is written again, in other words, those scripture verses may be true, and they are true. But I don't need to prove that they're true uh, any more than you say, well, you know, if God's going to protect me, I'm just going to go lay out in the freeway. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you know, God's going to protect me. Yeah, he'll protect you by taking you to heaven, maybe, <laughs> through that episode. Now, the third temptation begins in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The two other synoptic gospels being Mark and Luke add a little bit of extra to that. It's left out here for the purposes of Matthew's focus in writing. One of them says, where the devil says, All of these kingdoms I will give you, for they are mine, and I can give them to whomsoever I will. He acknowledged, that's a very bold statement, very powerful statement. He acknowledged that he was the God of this world. That back in the garden, Satan was given the title deed of the earth, by the fall of Adam and Eve, and essentially the world that was meant to be inhabited by godly people was given over to the domain of Satan so that he became the god of this world by default. And that's why in Revelation 5, Jesus the Lamb um, takes the title deed back, having shed his blood for the earth. He, he buys it back. He takes back the title deed of the earth in a, in a real real estate transaction. We, we just don't have time to, to go through it. But here's Satan making a very bold statement, showing him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This third temptation is, I believe, was the hardest of all for Jesus. Now Satan is questioning the promise of God 
You see, there were promises, and one of them that comes to mind is in Psalm 2, where God promised His Son, the Messiah, all the kingdoms of this world. Ask of me, it says, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the kingdoms of the earth to you. Ask me. They're yours. You will rule them with a rod of iron. It's a beautiful messianic psalm. But Jesus, the Son, knew why He had come to the earth. That He will rule and reign one day in the messianic kingdom, in the kingdom age, in the millennial kingdom. But first, first, He has come to die on a cross. And that He must act the part of the suffering servant before He becomes the glorious Lord reigning in glory. Yes, He has come to purchase salvation. And one day all the kingdoms of the earth will be given to Him. But He knows that first of all there must be suffering. First of all there must be a cross. There's a period of pain before I get the glory and the blessing. That's why this temptation, I say, was the hardest of all of them. Because Satan, in effect, is saying, you know, I know there's those promises, but how do we know those promises are ever going to be fulfilled? Tell you what, Jesus, I know why you've come. You've come to purchase the world back to God. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you right now. They're yours. You can have them. You don't have to go the hard way. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to suffer. I'll give them to you. I just want one thing. I want you, the Son of God, to fall down and worship me just for a moment of satisfaction. How often does Satan try to get you to question the promises of God? Yeah, I know the Bible says that, but boy, God hadn't been taking care of you, has He? Why don't you do for yourself what God has never done for you? In fact, why should you wait for that in patience and endurance? You can have it now. You can have prosperity now. You, you can... I'll give it to you now. No waiting. No suffering. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. You know... I was reading an article, it was in the Los Angeles Times, I believe, it was some time ago, where uh, a group of Satan worshippers were highlighted in an article, and, and one, I forget the guy's name, but he was being interviewed, they showed his picture on the cover, or on the cover of, of that section in the paper, and this is what he said, he goes, I think, quote, I think Satan is a cool dude. And then he went on to explain why he thought Satan was a cool dude. Now, I read this with interest because there was a time I kind of thought Satan was a cool dude. And then I found out he was a loser. <laughs> Posing as a cool dude. So he was a poser and a loser. But he said, Satan is a cool dude because he goes, God, God doesn't let you do what you want to do. Satan lets you do whatever you want to do. So his conclusion is, if I get to do what I want to do, whoever lets me do what I want to do is a cool dude. That was his thinking. Good luck trying to live your life that way. But he was trying to live his life that way. God restricts me. Satan lets me do what I want. Sure, the Titanic is sinking. Go, go play pool for free. Have fun. Have all the drinks you want. On me. Woohoo! Captain's great. <laughs> Captain of a sinking ship, man. God of this world. Going down. So you want the, you want the kingdom of this world? They're yours. Okay, just a note... Just a note. 
It says he was taken to an exceedingly high mountain. If you go to Israel today, there's a little mountain outside of Jericho in the middle of the desert, way down there, that they call the Mount of Temptation. And there's a monastery there, and it's a holy place. And they say that's where Jesus was tempted. Of course, we don't have photographs. So we don't know the mountain Jesus was tempted on. But the fact that it says it was an exceedingly high mountain sort of rules that one out for me. Because right across the Jordan River is Mount Nebo from where Moses could spy out the land and you can see all the way to the Mediterranean. Now that's an exceedingly high mountain. But because Luke adds this, listen carefully. Satan took him to a mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time seems to indicate to me that they're traveling visionarily, not physically. They're spiritually being able to have this conversation and be shown, be seen, all of the kingdoms of this world. Not like, well, there's Jericho, and if you follow the road, there's Jerusalem. Because really, really, you can't see anything except one city from there. So I tend to see this as a spiritual vision rather than being transported physically to these places while they're out there in the desert. Verse 11 says, Then the devil left him. Now, the other synoptics say Satan left him for a time. He'll be back. Like the ex-governor of California (laughs) used to say, I'll be back. So does Satan. Looks for an opportune time, the Bible says, And that's when he'll be back. And he'll be back in Jesus' life before it's all over. It says the angels came and ministered to him. Now we begin, in the few minutes we have left, we begin the public ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is off the scene. He's the forerunner. He's gone. Now the public ministry of Jesus begins. Something about Matthew. Matthew in his gospel focuses on some of the long discourses, messages, sermons that Jesus gives. And the first will be in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. I'll tell you why that's not a good title when we're there next time. But what he does now, since he's, he's going to go right into the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to spend a few verses preparing us for the Sermon on the Mount and giving us a little resume of Jesus' ministry and a summary of Jesus' ministry before launching into the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 12. Now, when uh, Jesus had heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. Why did John get put into prison? Well, it's because John was not very politically correct, to be honest with you. There was a guy named Herod Antipas who had a, 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 a liking for his brother Herod Philip's wife named Herodias. And this guy was married, and his brother was married, but he liked his wife better than his own wife. So he kicked out his wife, and he stole Herod Philip's wife Herodias away from him, and they hooked up. John the Baptist heard about it and denounced him, called him a sinner, said, God's going to judge you for that. Again, not very politically correct. As a favor to Herodias, Herod had him locked into prison. When Herod had him locked into prison to Jesus, this was a sign, it's time to go public. My forerunner's ministry is over. 
he's going to be in prison till he gets his head chopped off. So this was the indication that it's time now to launch into public ministry, and he does that. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? He said, he must increase. I must decrease. We've quoted that. We know it. It's a lovely It's a lovely idea. When John said that, I don't think he knew what that meant. The way he would decrease is by being arrested, rotting in prison, and getting his head chopped off. God's going to remove him. God's done with him. God brought him on this earth, filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb, to introduce Jesus. Now, your time's up, John. You're a young man, but your ministry's over. I'm taking you with me. Your reward, I'm taking, I'm taking you to heaven with me, man. Early. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait and get all those diseases and get old. You just, come on, let's go to heaven. You're going to decrease here. You'll increase there. But it's time for my sun to shine. And so Jesus, the sun is now coming up. The sun is shining. Jesus heard that John had been put into prison. He departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, which is part of Galilee, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and the way, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death... The light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Capernaum, the town of Peter. It's where Peter lived. It's where his brother Andrew lived. It's where the Zebedee boys lived. James and John. It's where Matthew lived, the tax collector. You can go to Israel today, and I can show you the mile marker where the Roman government used to collect taxes in Capernaum for the government. And it's one of the places I can point to and say, Matthew stood by that marker because that's where tax collectors stood when Jesus called him and said, Matthew, follow me. It was in Capernaum. So Jesus moves from Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum. Now, after seeing Nazareth and seeing Capernaum, I get it. Uh, Nazareth is okay, but when you see Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, it's like, okay, that's a cool place for headquarters right there, right on the shore. Awesome. Beautiful. Sea of Galilee is one of my favorite places to visit. And it's pretty much unchanged. That, that's the most amazing thing. When you go to Israel, you're on the Sea of Galilee, you go, yeah, where's like the, where's like the ho- big hotels? There's a few of them in Tiberias, but on that whole northwestern shore. You think, where's the, you know, if this were America, there'd be like casinos there and like, you know, Disneyland built, Disneyland Galilee. It's just real (laughs) rural. Now notice, it's to fulfill a prophecy given by Isaiah in chapter 9. And notice what it's called, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Galalia ton ethnon is the Greek word. Now, ethnon, ethnos, sounds like ethnic, right? Ethnic comes from ethnos, ethnon. It means literally the Galilee of the nations. And 
One of the beautiful things I see here is a prefiguring that Jesus wouldn't just be the Jewish Messiah, but that he had come for all the nations, come for all the world, uh, that his ministry would have a worldwide scope, that he had come to be the savior of the world. All the nations are involved. And it says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, the light has dawned. Did you know that Galilee was known by the Jews in Jerusalem as the region of death? Because that northern section of Israel, the Galilee region, had seen more wars. Enemies would come in from the north and infiltrate the land. And because the Assyrians had come that way and the Babylonians had come that way, Galilee was more of a mixed multitude, mixed marriages, not the pure bread like down in Jerusalem. The Galileans, the Jerusalemites said, were the hicks. They had the funny accents of the land. And they did. They, you could hear in Jerusalem, when, when Peter was speaking uh, after Jesus was arrested, and remember the servant girl of the high priest? She goes, I can hear by the way you're speaking. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? It was his speech that gave it away. It was his Galilean accent. And... <laughs> They, down south in Jerusalem, didn't take kindly to those Galileans. It was the place of death. It was the region of death. It's where the Gentiles influenced the world of the Jews. Here's what I love. Jesus sets up his headquarters in the place that was the offscoring, that was the scourge, that was the outcasts of the land, the place of darkness. Hey, I'm going to set up my headquarters where, where the people talk funny, where all the outcasts live, where the people who are on the periphery and not, not recognized by the crowd. To me, there's a beautiful message there. You might be that person. You felt like I'm an outcast my whole life. I've always been pushed to the edge, to the periphery. I'm sort of like not in the inner group, in the light. I'm sort of in the darkness, in the shadows. It's your heart, especially, that Jesus wants to put his headquarters in. He wants to do a change in, in the shadow of darkness in your life, in your heart. That, that, he loves that. He didn't go, I'm going to Jerusalem, man. That's the cool place. He goes, I'll take Galilee. Nazareth and then Capernaum. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And notice verse 17, if you were here last week, it's the same exact message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John um, the Baptist said that. Jesus said that. And, and, here's a side note, 32 times in Matthew, that phrase, kingdom of heaven, will appear. Some of you are going to, before you text me, because I don't have time to answer it tonight, are going to say, what's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? That's for another study. We have one minute left. <laughs> Jesus, verse 18, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Shimon, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, 
his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their pops, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left the boat and their dad, their father, and followed him. And Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I want to finish the chapter. We'll go back and make comment more on it next week before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. But that last verse draws a hundred-mile perimeter. Jesus' fame is growing throughout the northern regions of Syria and all around. So get this. People would... They didn't have cars. They didn't have tour buses. They didn't have trains. They would walk. And his fame caused people to walk, for some of them, a hundred miles to see Jesus. Think about that next time you're all bummed out that you have to drive to church such a long distance. (laughs) Couldn't resist getting that one in. But I want to end on this note. The place of the rejects, the region of darkness, the Galilee of the nations, those who aren't of us, the pure, breaded people of God, that's where Jesus sets up his headquarters. He'd love to change your life. He'd love to deliver you from darkness. It might be the darkness of the occult, It might be the darkness of an addiction. It might be the darkness of your religion. Darkness is darkness. If you don't know Jesus, you're in darkness. He'd love to set up shop, to set up HQ, headquarters, in your heart by redemption, if you'd let him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the last hour and a half of being together in song, in commissioning people overseas, and then having a meal in your word. Lord, as I'm praying for this, I'm thinking of a couple who is presently in China who wrote to me this week remarking on the fact that they were so blessed to be able to tune in on the computer and catch the services live, the midweek and the weekend. We thank you, Father, that all over the world, you have your people and you have your plan. Just like Jesus foreshadowed that when he went to the Galilee of the nations, the Gentiles, the region of darkness, the outcasts, the funny talkers, the people on the edge, the people that nobody really wanted to associate with. And you love to set up shop and lives just like that. You have chosen the foolish things of this world, Paul says. Lord, I pray for anyone who might feel that they've just, they've lived that kind of a life. They've been sort of outcast or they lived in darkness. 
And it could be the darkness of any of those things that we have just mentioned, but they want to come into the light tonight. I pray that you'd rescue them. We're praying right now, and we're asking God to do works in lives even beyond just feeding us His Word, maybe a work of salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Jesus, or you've walked away from Him and you're not living in obedience to Him, or you grew up in a church and you've been religiously involved, but you've never made a personal, decisive commitment to Christ. If any of those things describe you and you're willing to give your life to Jesus, to come home to Him tonight, I want you to raise your hand up in the air as we're praying right now. Just say, here's my hand. Just raise it up so I can see it. God bless you, ma'am. And you, right in the middle. Anyone else? Raise that hand up. In the back, on my left side, up front on the left, way in the back in the corner, way in the back on my right side, way in the back row, and in the back again. Father, we're so grateful. And we pray as these come into a relationship with you, even as Jesus said to those disciples, follow me. And they left everything immediately and they followed him. I pray that would be the case here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up? As we sing this final song, I saw lots of hands go up. I want you to quickly find the nearest aisle and walk the aisle right up front. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You made that decision to raise your hands. Good on you. Now make the decision to follow that with your feet and come stand right up here as we sing. Bless you. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Isn't that just so awesome to see? I love it. Surrender. Abandonment to God. I'd love the opportunity now to lead those of you who have walked forward in a prayer. I'm going to pray out loud, and I'm going to ask you to pray out loud after me from your heart. Say these words to God. Okay, ready? We'll say it out loud. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. That He died on the cross. That He shed His blood for me. And that He rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn to You as my Savior. I want to live for You as my Lord. Help me. Fill me with Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Congratulations. Congratulations, every one of you. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. 
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.